Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you are here today, and for all of you who are joining us as guests, you're most welcome. To all of you watching and listening online in our North location and also in Connect Groups this week, we are so glad that you're joining us. If you do have a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to the book of Acts. If you don't, it's going to be on the side screens here or whatever location you're at, or you can, of course, uh, turn there virtually. We are coming to the end of a series out of the book called the Book of Acts, written by a man named Dr. Luke. And last week, the story ended with so much profound sadness. Paul, who now is an older man, comes to some of his closest friends, and he basically says these words to them, we're never ever going to see each other ever again. It was truly a long goodbye. Do you remember it? Full of emotion, like a Christian funeral, honest pain, question, loss, even anger, but joy and hope, because the, dis- the difference is we have something that the world does not have. We know there is a part two. Just as Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead, so Paul also would be, and also they would be. And yet, though that is true, it does not remove the sting. Loss and love, pain and promise, hollowness and hope, loss but secure legacy. It was like losing such a close friend too early, and that is why Dr. Luke records below that they are literally torn or ripped away from each other. And yet now we're on our way to Jerusalem in this grand historic narrative, and we almost see Paul's travelocity plans as we go. But knowing that he is going to this place, we know now 2,000 years later that there is a storm coming which in the end will actually take Paul's life out. And so today, Luke and Paul, with a group of friends, are en route to their final destination in Jerusalem. And Acts 21.1 reads like this. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea, and we sailed straight by Kos. And the next day, we went to Rhodes, and from there, Patera, and we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. We went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing, passing south of it, we sailed to Syria, and we landed at Tyre, where our ship was unloading its cargo. And we found Christians there in Tyre, and we stayed with them for seven days. And through the Holy Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So as they're traveling day and night, port to port, province to province, they come to Tyre, and amazingly, they find a group of Christians that have now been there for decades. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question, whether you're a seeker this morning, a skeptic, a long-term Christian, or somewhere in between, why in the world and how in the world are there Christians here already in Syria? Well, the amazing thing in this story is this church, this group of believers, actually was formed as Christians were running away from the man who's now standing among them. Don't forget who Paul used to be. Paul used to be a Saul, a man who actually was at the murder of the very first Christian who hunted Christians, put Christians in jail, and now his name is Saul, and he's standing in a church that was formed by those that were running from this very man. Do you see this this morning, the grand redemptive story God was weaving 2,000 years ago, and God keeps weaving now in 2017? This church was planted and formed by people that this man, Paul, used to hunt and jail 
jail and kill. And now Paul, once known as Saul, now is there as a Christian leader. He is greeted by them, loved by them. Enemies are now friends and family through Jesus. Let me declare this with authority this morning. Nothing has the power in this world to overcome racism, religious hate, suspicion, ethnic blood feuds, and all other ills in humanity like the work and the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in a person's life. And we see that right here so profoundly. And so he gathers with another group of Jesus followers, and what happens to Paul once again? Well, a person or a group within that church with the gift of prophecy starts foreseeing through the Spirit that Paul is going to face terrible, terrible persecution if he goes back to Jerusalem. So it says in the Scriptures, through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go. Now, I want us to camp there for a bit because this is confusing. This little verse is actually very important, not only for our church, but for our understanding. We're going to hang out in this passage today because this whole passage is about the spiritual gift of prophecy. Luke, as he's recording this encounter, is seeing how God is infusing the spiritual act of prophecy as they're going through land and sea. And the affirmation of what Paul is supposed to do is not coming through teaching like this, nor is it coming through community, but through prophecy. So once again, we must ask the question, okay, what is the gift of prophecy and how does it function? And are New Testament prophets the same as Old Testament prophets? Well, the answer, by the way, is allowed no to that. In the Old Testament, prophets were inspired to write the very words of God. They are the authors of what we now have in the Bible, the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there was another group that had that same function. They were called capital A apostles. They wrote down God's thoughts and God's word that are contained in the New Testament. But that is not what the spiritual gift of prophecy is. So you've got to ask yourself the question, well, what in the world is that? And actually, does it matter or is it just gone? I love what Wayne Grudem once wrote. He said, prophecy in a New Testament sense is simply referring to something that God might suddenly bring to your mind or something that God might impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense it actually is from God. It may be that the thought brought to mind is surprisingly distinct from, um, from the person's own train of thought, or that it is accompanied by a sense of vividness or urgency or persistence, or in some other way gives the person a rather clear sense this is actually from God himself. Now, here's what we need to understand about this, especially some of you who have been long-term Christians. Prophecy in the New Testament is not teaching. Prophecy in the New Testament is fallible. Prophecy in the New Testament is not equal to Scripture. It must be tested because it is underneath Scripture. And this verse is very important for us. It's an example for us because it says in this church service 2,000 years ago, under the Spirit, they say you're going to endure terrible hardship. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that the Spirit of God had told Paul this again and again and again everywhere he went. Remember Acts 20, He says, I, this is Paul speaking, I am compelled by the Holy Spirit that I must go to Jerusalem not knowing what's going to happen to me there. And remember I asked everyone who's taking notes or you had your Connect Group book out to highlight or circle the word compelled. I am bound, I am captive, I am pushed, I am forced by the Holy Spirit of God. I am being forcibly guided or dragged by the Holy Spirit, and I must obey him no matter the outcome. The Holy Spirit is forcing me back to the most dangerous place on earth. And then he said, remember these next words, I only know that in every city, 
The Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Each time I show up, no matter the church, no matter the background, no matter the skin color, no matter the gender makeup, every time I walk into a church service lately, he says, someone with the gift of prophecy stands up and says, just so you know, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem, and just so you know, you're going to go to prison, and it's going to be really difficult. Do you remember what I said last week? One of the great, uh, terrible things that's happened in the Christian faith in North America and also in Africa is the health and wealth gospel, where teachers stand up and say, if you become a Christian, everything's just going to be okay. If you become a Christian, you'll never be sick on this side of eternity. You're going to be wealthy and healthy. God wants you to be rich, and everything's going to be fine. And yet, would you read the scriptures this morning when the Spirit of God moves here in one of the most profound ways throughout four or 5,000 years of recorded history, the Spirit of God constrains Paul into not wealth or health, but into suffering. Self-preservation was not on Paul's agenda nor actually was it his driving motive. His concern was doing what Jesus had told him to do. Now let me go back to Acts 21.4. But now it says that through the Holy Spirit, this local church urges Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So this seems profoundly crazy and contradictory to me. The Holy Spirit tells Paul, go. Every church service that takes place, the Holy Spirit says, go. And now suddenly in this church in Syria, the Holy Spirit says, don't go. Is God contradicting himself? No. This is when we begin to understand how prophecy functions. And then we also begin to see the human response and the wrong interpretation of it. Oh, God has spoken it again and again. There, that is correct. But what we see here and what we're about to see in a bit is the addition, which is not of God, which is the don't go. Here's what the church is saying to Paul. Paul, why in the world would you go to the most dangerous place on earth for you? You don't need to do this. You've given your life to Jesus. You've been beaten multiple times, stoned three times. You've been shipwrecked more than once. You've lost your family and friends because you became a follower of Jesus. Look, you've paid your dues. Just go to the golf course and enjoy life. You do not, you're my friend. I don't want to see you suffer. I don't want to see you to go to jail or even lose your life. But see, this is why Paul, years earlier, writing to another church, had given these very important instructions about New Testament prophecy. 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but you test them all. You hold on to what is good and you throw out what is wrong, what's evil. See, here's what Paul's starting point was with prophecy. It was always going to have something wrong in it that needed to be thrown out when the prophecy was given. And here it is experienced right in a church service. The wrong was, the human was, the motives are right, but the interpretation wrong. Paul, it's bad. It's really bad. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. And notice how Paul responds. Paul doesn't say, oh, you're a bunch of false Christians. The spirit of Antichrist is speaking through you. You're all demon-possessed. We should stone you. No, no. He just smiles and says, no, you just got this one wrong. You got the spirit right. You got the interpretation wrong. Look what he says in verse 5. But when our time was up, we left. And we continued on our way. And all the disciples and their wives and their children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt and we prayed. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage to Tyre and landed and Potelemus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed there with them for one day. Can I just stop on this somewhat boring-looking verse and just point out something that's so profound and true? They only hang out with these Christians for one day. They find another group of people. And let me just say this. 
Isn't it true, if you are a Christian this morning, I know some of you aren't, but for you who are Christians, isn't it true that when you have the privilege of traveling the world and you run into another Christian, there is a unique, bizarre bond you have with them immediately, no matter if you've met them or not? You know what I'm saying? You're walking and you meet them and you sort of, you get the sense, the vibe, you're like, oh, oh, maybe brother and sister in Jesus. You draw half a fish if you're old school, some of you will get the inside joke, <laughs> right? But you have this conversation back and forth and, and then you sort of say, well, you know, have you, oh, you, oh, Jesus, oh, right? But this happens every time, no matter the skin color or the background. Why do we have a bond that transcends race? Why do we have a bond that transcends denomination? Why do we have something the United Nations still can't get? Here's why. We have a same Father who's elected us. We all know the Lord Jesus. He keeps praying for us. We've experienced God's love in a way the world does not understand, and we are all possessed by the same Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit in us is near the Holy Spirit in them, he being one God says, whoop, brother and sister, and it is a beautiful thing. It is a picture of what the world desperately wants, but what we have through the grace of God. Amen to that? And so here, beautifully, right, they spend a day, and there's just this beautiful, striking bond. It says they left the next day, and then they reached Caesarea, and they stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Now, some of you haven't been on the journey with us. Some of you don't know the Bible. Some of you do. But all the way back at the beginning of Acts, and the back at the beginning of our series, Spirit Move, This man, Philip, was introduced. He was one of the seven original deacons called to deal with the serving crisis in chapter 6. And here's what's shocking and profound and and life mind-bending almost is this. When Saul started attacking and jailing Christians, Philip ran for his life. And Philip ran to a place no good Jew would run. He ran to Samaria his blood enemies. He had been taught his whole life that Samaritans were dogs and nothing and should be hated and were heretics. And he, while he was running from now the guy who's hanging out in his house, he ran to Samaria and there he started doing miracles and healings and casting out demons. And he proclaimed to his blood enemies that Jesus loved them too. And a bunch of Samaritans became Christians and a church got formed there as he's running for his life. And then in the middle of that revival and that huge church that gets birth, suddenly the Holy Spirit said to Philip, you need to leave this unbelievable experience. You need to go to the Judean foothills because I want you to meet one person. Do you remember the story? And so Philip shows up and unbeknownst to him, he doesn't know who's coming and walks in an Ethiopian eunuch who works for the queen who runs all of Ethiopia at that time. He talks to him and leads him to Jesus. And do you remember what I said a few months ago? What in the world could make an Orthodox Greek Jew who's confessed Jesus Jesus as the Messiah, love a black African because a Greek Orthodox Jew had been taught his whole life that all non-Jews also were dogs and lost and God did not love them. What could overcome suspicion and culture and different worldviews and race and misapplied theology? Once again, let me declare it with great joy this morning. Jesus Within eight chapters in the book of Acts, Jews, Greek Jews, Samaritans, and Africans are already included in God's family through Jesus. And this has always been the agenda of God. And let me say this again. What worldview provides peace and forgiveness and love and hope that millions are not only willing to die for, but they'll forgive the ones that are actually doing the killing? Luke shows again and again that God is no respecter of persons. The obstacle of age 
age and religious tradition and race and ethnic origin and economic and educational status or physical limitation will never bar someone from the family of God if they want to come home through Jesus. And Philip, a man who was an Orthodox Jew who met Jesus through the Spirit in Jerusalem, helped the church establish itself in Samaria, goes to the foothills of Judea and leads the first non-Jew truly to Christ. He is Acts 1-8 incarnate. Go first to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now, decades later, Philip has a, thri- sorry, uh, he has a thriving family, and now he's sitting having tea with his old enemy. Nothing in the world can create scenarios like this other than Jesus. And it said that this man, Philip, had four unmarried daughters who also prophesied. Well, after he was hanging out for a while, his number of days, it says, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus has shown up once already in Acts 11, but now he comes, and he, once again, as a prophet, is going to confirm what the Holy Spirit has been saying to Paul in every single church service. But he does it with more power, more flair, and more detail. It says in Acts 21.11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt off. Now, I want you to imagine this. Paul's sitting there, and a stranger comes up and starts grabbing for a guy's belt. Personal space violation. Get out of my space. He comes and takes the belt off, and then he does the strangest thing. He takes this elongated belt, and he ties his own hands and his feet, which would mean he can't move or he'd fall over. And as he's sort of doing this dramatic, weird thing, then he looks at Paul and says, the Holy Spirit says this to you. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the non-Jews. Now, Agabus is using image and drama, and it's extremely strange to us, but it's completely normal from the Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament, you'll know it. In 1 Kings, for example, one prophet took his coat off and ripped it in half to show Solomon how his kingdom would be divided because of a civil war. Even more strange and weird was Isaiah, the great prophet. He was commanded by God himself to walk around naked in public barefoot to show how the Egyptians were going to be taken over by the Assyrians. Uh, Ezekiel is even weirder than that. There was a huge sort of uh, toy, not toy, but like a, a demonstration of the city, like a model of the city of Jerusalem. And God personally told Ezekiel to lay over the model, literally lay on it for days to show them that a great calamity was going to come over the city. Just as a side note, if you think that God is safe and clean and unweird, I don't know what Bible you're reading God is uncontrollable and asks his people to do very strange things. Don't walk around naked next week. We'll take you out. Now, there is one difference, though, between those historic acts and this one. In the Old Testament, they were actually writing the scriptures. But here, if you read forward in Acts 22 and Acts 21 and Acts 23, Agabus gets two-thirds of it right and one-third of it wrong. See, it's actually not the Jews who bind him, it's the Romans that bind him. So you have to ask yourself a question. Is Agabus wrong? Is he a false prophet? No, no. Let me go back to what the gift of prophecy is and what it looks like. Again, I love what one person wrote. The prediction wasn't far off, but it had inaccuracies in detail that would have called into question the validity of of an Old Testament prophet. On the other hand, this text could be perfectly well explained by supposing that Agabus had a vision of Paul as a prisoner of the Romans in Jerusalem, surrounded by an angry mob of his fellow Jews. 
His own interpretation of such a vision or revelation from the Spirit would be the Jews had bound Paul and handed them to the Romans. And that is what Agabus would have somewhat erroneously prophesied. This is exactly the type of fallible prophecy that fits the New New Testament congregational definition of prophecy. It's reporting in one's own mind words something God has spontaneously brought to mind. So Agabus is under the Spirit. He says the right thing. He interprets it wrong. Well, then it gets extremely interesting. And by the way, this is when everyone in this room, all of you up north, anyone listening online, no matter your background spiritually, this is when you need to start leaning in. It says that when we heard this, who's the we? Remember, Dr. Luke is writing this. Dr. Luke is a medical doctor who actually, in the book of Luke, that's what we have, interviewed all the eyewitnesses of the original movement to see if Jesus really had physically risen from the dead and now is on the journey with Paul. He's the first church historian, very smart, very educated, and he has been and witnessed all these amazing things. Now watch what Luke, who loves Jesus deeply now and is convinced it's all true, look what Luke and the church does. He said, when we heard this, we and the people, the church, pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not only ready to be bound, but I will die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't make this harder for me. Don't try stopping God's will for me. See, this reflects the power and pain of decision. Luke has been in every church service where the Spirit of God has spoken and commanded this of Paul. Luke is a follower of Jesus. Luke believes in the promptings of the Spirit. But now when the cost seems too high, he is actually, think about this, he is begging Paul not to obey God. Why? Because comfort and security and friendship actually had more authority than God's will. And Paul's response to this genuine outpouring, genuine fear is, don't make this harder for me. And here's the line that's going to offend some of you. Paul is saying, I love you so much, but I love someone more than all of you. I love Jesus more than my own life. And what is inferred here is seeing I have to go there because so many other people there don't have the gift that we take for granted now. That is relationship with God through Jesus. Paul understood that everything he had done, good, successful, accepted, and rejected, was all done for the audience of one, not many. Like I preached on legacy last week, Paul had no time trying to build a legacy in his family or in statues or in books. His goal, his legacy, would never be held by history or human hands. It was all about heaven. I love what Ajit Fernando once wrote, a great leader, a Christian leader in Sri Lanka, when he said even Paul's closest friends don't understand the path he was taking. Heroes are usually admired only from a distance. When they're actually doing the work that ultimately leads to becoming a hero, it seems costly to us, strange to us, and actually foolish. It's their loved ones that see the cross of suffering as strange and foolish. Their their loved ones want to spare them the pain. For example, he says many people that leave their families to go to another country to talk about Christ go against the wishes of their parents. And when they find that the going is tough and they write home or they call home, the parents get upset at their kids or accuse the sending agency of causing them harm. 
See, I've actually lived through this because my parents were missionaries in the 80s. And though my mother's mother and father loved Jesus and were committed to Jesus when they were called to missions, they were the most resistant people to my parents leaving. How in the world could you take my daughter to a fourth world country in 1982? Are you crazy? How in the world can you take our grandson into danger? Don't you know that you're supposed to be a responsible parent? Yes, unless Jesus has spoken first. And Paul says, don't make this harder for me. And then it says in verse 14, you can see the wrestle and the intensity and the argument right in a church service. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, fine, the Lord's will be done. When they saw it wasn't pride or insanity, but prompting They end up praying the prayer that every believer has prayed since the beginning of our time, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, not as it is in heaven. Oh, and never forget that this is not just a passing comment or sort of statement of defeat. This is exactly what Jesus himself prayed just before he was executed. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane waiting for that mob about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends to come and kiss him when Lucifer and the whole kingdom of darkness was waiting to join forces with humanity to kill the one that had created him. What did Jesus himself utter to the Father? Father, if you're willing, you take this cup from me. Not my will, though, but your will be done. By the way, what came of Jesus' amazing obedience? Well, we have salvation. What came of Paul's amazing obedience? Well, we're sitting here in Ajax in 2017, still talking about his amazing work. And then it just simply reads like this. There's a finality to it. And it says, after this, we got ready. We went up. We went to Jerusalem. Let me take a few moments to speak to different groups of us here this morning. Because we're in so many different places, and that's great. Let me just talk about the gift of prophecy for our church for a moment because it matters. In 2008, it was the first time I preached out of this passage. I preached through the book of Acts. A few of you were there. And I was wrestling with our church, wrestling with our church to actually be open to what the Spirit of God truly wanted to do in our church. And many people were resisting what the Spirit of God wanted to do. And I remember standing at this place, not with this pulpit, saying these words, that we need to understand the role of prophecy in our church and begin to practice it and not be ashamed about it. Now, years later, this has become so important to us. The very fabric of our church and much of our planning has had its foundation here. We use the phrase all the time here. We go from prompting uh, to planning. Many times before I've got up to preach, people have texted or emailed in verses or images or visions, and they have no clue what I'm about to speak on or others are about to speak on, and it is the very themes, and it is the very idea of what is going to be speaking. In other words, the Spirit of God is so confirming, it is so powerful, it is so validating. There are many people sitting in this congregation, in this service up north, and in other services that will happen later, whose lives have been deeply changed by the right use of this gift. Marriages have been radically changed by this gift. People have actually gone into ministry because of this gift. People that were hiding in sin have been called out through this gift, and now they are walking in freedom. That is why we at C4 unashamedly encourage all the gifts here, because it is the only ongoing guaranteed place of power to serve from. But let me, especially you who like this gift, I'd like to point something out for this, uh, you this morning. Notice something about the, how this is recorded in these three chapters. Paul has the same prompting and leading over and over and over again from different people, from different backgrounds, in different churches. Is an overall rule when God calls or commands or prophesies through the church, it will be confirmed over and over again from very different people. 
Some of those profound things that have happened, we're a church of 2,600 people, vast and large and growing, but we have had encounters as a staff where people in different services, from different genders, from different skin colors, none of them talking to each other, have given the exact same prophecy or verse, and we have known that the Spirit of God is speaking. But that is why testing is so important. If something, if you just hear something in your head, you have to ask yourself the question, what is really happening right now? Without testing prophecy, great damage can be done to you, your faith, or a church. Wrong expectations can be set. See, that is why, again, testing is so pivotal. You need to ask yourself the question, is this the devil? Is this just what I want? Am I having a psychological breakdown? Is it the fish tacos from last night? Is it God? All of it has to be on the table. And that is why we, totally open to what the Spirit of God wants to do, all the time say, done in community, tested in community. So if you have the spiritual gift of prophecy here this morning, we're so glad you're part of us. Would you continue to give it back to God and make sure it's never about you or your ego? Would you continue to submit your words and images to the pastoral staff so we can test and see if they're truly from the Lord? And remember, much of the time what you submit, there probably is an addition or a subtraction that needs to be walked through. But let me say one last thing. It's very interesting when Paul was writing to another church about this gift, he said that one of the greatest ways to evangelize, in other words, introduce people to Jesus, is actually through this gift. Because when a hardened, educated person who has it all together encounters a Christian with a gift of prophecy, and suddenly that person who is filled with the Spirit of Christ is able to tell them the secrets of their hearts, suddenly at that moment they must wrestle with, is there a God? How did you know that? I, I don't have that on Facebook. You couldn't have creeped that out of me. So how in the world do you know? And in that moment, people come to faith. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. If an unbeliever or a seeker, an inquirer, comes in while everyone is prophesying, they will be convicted of their sin, brought under the judgment by all, and the secrets of their hearts will be laid bare, and they will fall down, worshiping God, exclaiming, God is truly among you. And so my prayer for our church, number one, is this, that the Spirit of God would continue to pour out prophecy in such a way that unbelievers are actually encountering Jesus in shocking ways, that the church is encouraged, that we are continually rebuked. But I want to say, but we will continue to do it in community and test it to make sure that we do not do additions or subtractions that take away from the work of God. Anyone want to say amen to that this morning? This is where we're at. But let me now broaden it to a larger audience this morning. The name of this whole series is Spirit Move. And I want to ask this question, Spirit Move no matter the direction. Some of you are completely flabbergasted about this morning, and you're somewhat confused. You walk into a room in the middle of the GTA or on the east side of the GTA, and you see a bunch of people singing to a person who's not in the room, and you see a love among us that makes no sense. And so let me give you an analogy because I need to give you an analogy, especially if you're an inquirer or a seeker, to understand what I'm about to say next. Because if you don't hear this first, this will seem deeply fanatical. When you attend a wedding, there's usually a group of people in the room that don't want to be there. Anyone want to admit that? Hmm, yeah. Oh, amen. All right. Don't invite that person. Okay. No, but think about this. You got invited because a friend of a friend invited you, and you have no clue what's going on. You go, you sit in the ceremony, you don't know anyone, you're bored of your mind, and you can't wait for the speeches to be done. 
There's another group of you that are family or friends and you're close to the bride or gloom. So you're excited for the day. Well, depending, I suppose, on the family dynamics, you should be, hopefully, and you still want the speeches to be done. That's just the honest truth. And then there's the close family, right? And the bridesmaids and the groomsmen who are right in the middle of it. And you're closest to the action. But there's one difference. If you're the bride or the groom, you're at the center because you're actually there to meet the other person. And when a bride or groom or bride walks down an aisle to meet a groom like this, they are going to meet the one they love the most. Everyone else is just a spectator. This is encounter. See, this is what happens in church. All sorts of people who come to church are friends of friends of friends. You just, shut up, John, you're talking too long. I get it. Others of you are like, you know, I'm sort of in and I like the observation. I like watching all of this and being involved. But those who actually have converted and really met Jesus every Sunday and every moment in life is like this all the time. Because there is such a profound love you have for one you've never seen but you've met named Jesus. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is the only image that I can bring to the church this morning to describe the self-sacrifice Paul is willing to do. Remember what I said last week? The great idol of the the middle class is self-preservation. It is fueled by comfort, wanting to avoid risk, and at the same time is deeply passive. On the other side, our culture is fueled by fear. And in the middle of this, many, many people have become jaded and skeptical. And the only thing that could shock this worldview to its core and make faith actually real is a love for someone that is beyond all that. Hear what Paul says about Jesus. I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for Jesus. If you're a Christian here this morning, no matter how long, can you even say those words? What makes someone like Paul versus a floundering Christian? What what brings someone as a believer in Jesus who's willing to say that friends and money and safety and power and reputation and personal agenda and comfort and retirement, it's all fine, but secondary? The answer is this. It's relational. It's about one that is so in love with Jesus for what he has done, what he's going to do, and what he is doing that you would be willing to put everything on the line. It is an all-consuming, ever-growing, remembering and experiencing. It is someone who actually lives in the past and realizes that Jesus' death and resurrection is not just myth. It is a historical, real, defendable experience, and it is real for you. It is living in the present where the Spirit of God continually pours out the love of Christ in your heart as he comforts and rebukes and empowers you. It is knowing that the future that Jesus taught about is true. There is a time where there will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain because the old order has passed away. How can you not say yes to a Jesus like that who's done so much when you know who he is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's promised? It is easier to follow a love like that and submit to a love like that. Yet most of us in church are Luke and we're the crowd who love Jesus and love church and are committed and are okay with promptings, but when the time comes where the Spirit moves in a profoundly uncomfortable direction, we go, no, no, we shouldn't do that. And at that moment, it tests this. Henry Nouwen, the great Catholic thinker and mystical writer, I think encapsulates this so much for us. He says, you know, Jesus is a really interesting person. His words are full of wisdom, his presence is heartwarming, his gentleness and kindness are moving, his message challenging, but do we invite him into our home? 
Do we want him to come to know us behind the walls of our most intimate life? Do we want to introduce him to all the people we hang out with? Do we want to see, uh, do we want him to see us in our everyday life? Do we want him to touch us where we're most vulnerable? Do we want to have him enter into the back room of our home, rooms that actually we would like to keep locked? Do we truly want him to stay over when it gets evening? Having listening to his words, are we able to say to Jesus more than, well, that was really interesting? Would we ever dare say, I trust you? I entrust myself with all my being and all my body and all my mind and all my soul to you. I don't want to keep any secrets from you, Jesus. You can see everything. I do and hear everything. I don't want you to be a stranger in any way or sense. I want you to become my most intimate friend. I want you to know me and not only to walk on the road with me, but actually I want you to find, I want you to find yourself with me when I am alone with my innermost feelings and thoughts. And most of all, I want you to come know me, not just as a companion, but the companion of my soul. Saying this is not easy since we're fearful people. We don't easily entrust every part of ourselves to anyone. Our fear of being completely open and vulnerable is equal to our desire to know and being known. He writes, I even hide parts from myself from myself. There are thoughts and feelings and emotions that are just so disturbing to me, I just prefer that they weren't even there. And if I don't trust myself, how can I trust anyone else? Still, my deepest desire is to be loved and love others, and that's only possible if I'm willing to be known and know others. And Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd who knows us intimately and loves us. But do we want to be known by him? Do we want Jesus to freely walk into every room of our house? Do we actually want Jesus to see the bad side, the good side, the shadow side, the light side? Or do we actually prefer that Jesus keeps walking by without entering in? He finally writes, do we really trust him and entrust every part to ourselves to him? Say, John, why do you quote that? Here it is. The reason why Paul was able to go and suffer The reason why Paul was able to lose his family and friends at the beginning, the reason why there's such an unbelievable story around Paul is this. He so understood the love of Jesus. He understood the love of Jesus. He used to murder Christians and that God would forgive him and that the Spirit of God would be him, and that there would be eternal life for him. If the love of Christ grows in the heart of a Christian more and more, as we become more vulnerable with Jesus, not a secret in front of him, not a resistant, we say to Jesus, anything, there is a willingness to suffer there because you know that what is coming is better, and you know the love of God will sustain you. But if you do not have a relationship with Jesus where you walk down the aisle every week, coming to encounter the love of your life who puts all all other things in its place. You will never suffer for the kingdom of God. Paul wasn't just brilliant or a fantastic CEO or a strategist or having two PhDs, though much of it's true. It was the love of Jesus that he had and he had for others that drove him to the place that if the Spirit of God said go and suffer, he would willingly do it. Why? Because he knew the love of God was worth it and he wanted other people to do it too. And so I don't say this like this. I say this like this. For all of us, what can shock and break the GTA and all of its affluence and intensity and money and power? It is going to be 
a love relationship with Jesus that makes no sense but becomes profoundly attractive? Are you willing to say to Jesus, maybe, this, as a Christian? Last thought. Some of you here today are not Paul, you're Saul. (laughs) Uh, No, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're out hunting and jailing Christians. Don't misunderstand me. But I want to remind you of something. Years earlier from this text, Saul was an enemy of Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and changed his life. And he became a messenger of life, not death. When Saul met Jesus for the first time, he prayed and fasted as a sign of regret, and he called out for mercy, and he suddenly found himself declaring Jesus as the Son of God and made him Savior and Lord, and it actually says scales fell from his eyes. He saw reality as it actually is. And I just want to say this again, open hands. So the same for some of you here today, some of you online, whatever country you're listening in. You're Paul, you're Saul. And the question that is being asked at this moment is, are you willing to actually meet Jesus and humble yourself and call out for a relationship and actually have a second chance that actually gives you purpose in this life beyond what you can sleep with, own, or buy and give you legacy that is guaranteed? Be like Saul. Stop fighting heaven. The great offense of the Christian message is that you actually have to stop relying on your education, your good works, your religion, that is proving yourself to God or buying forgiveness, or your history or your family background or your rebellion or your self-sufficiency or your money or other religions or other worldviews or other spiritualities and only come home to find life through one door and his name's Jesus. I love what Mark Shepard wrote once. He's a Harvard uh, prof at the uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, secular Jew, atheist, who while he was at Harvard as an undergrad started wrestling with the the universe and actually ended up becoming a follower of Christ. Brilliant man, very much like Saul. And he said, you know, I suddenly realized I was a sinner needing saving. And I love what he defined as sin. He said, you know, sin is in its common usage is a joke in our culture. It's a word used for pleasurable things that prudish people don't like. He says, that's not what I mean by sin. Sin in my experience is rooted in an overwhelming pride. When I enter the world, I want to be better than everyone else. I'm going to be more impressive and more accomplished, and I will be recognized as such. He said in his own case, when mixed with the academic environment like Harvard, this sinful tendency of pride was nothing but toxic. Collectively, it led to bottom-line thinking with a culture of celebrity for people who succeed and a worthlessness for those who do not succeed. It turned Harvard's greatest strength, its brilliant people, into a source of envy and anxiety. In my life, he says, I have seen the way this thinking leads to depression, unfruitfulness, a desire to quit academics, and actually even death. But here's the little line I love. He says, sin is simply self-destructive. So if you are a person who has never met God, through Jesus. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. There's no other way to find God except through me because he's God. This is your moment. You've been brought to this place to hear the good news of Christ and see the life transformation of Paul at the beginning, the middle, and the end to know that there is something beyond all you're doing now. So would we all stand, and we're going to respond in different ways this morning. 
Number one, if uh, we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to continue to give us the gift of prophecy. Number two, we're all as Christians, if you are, are going to wrestle with our love for Christ and our willingness to sacrifice. And then lastly, we're just going to take a moment to invite anyone to actually cross a line of faith. So let's just pray. Number one, Lord, thank you so much that you love us and you're among us. Thank you for all the spiritual gifts you've given this church by your Holy Spirit. And we just pray together as a church, thank you, but we ask for more now of the spirit of prophecy among our people. May you, Lord Jesus, continue to do this amazing supernatural work. More prophecy, more prompting to lead, to planning to lead to the kingdom endeavors. We ask this in Jesus' name. Second of all, all of us who have been walking with you for a while, help us to understand, no condemnation to this, but Father and Son, send out the Holy Spirit to grow a love for Jesus in us to such a way that we view sacrifice as gift and love back to the one who's loved us. I can't preach it. You just, you've got to transform our heart in a way I can't articulate. But if you're a Christian, could you just say amen to that this morning? And lastly, if you are a person who has never encountered the Jesus that we know in this church, the Jesus Paul and Philip and others have, and you want to humble yourself and come home, just pray this. Say, Lord Jesus Christ, I wasn't even showing up to do this. For some reason, I will confess you are the Son of God and you died for my sins and you did rise again and I need you to forgive me of what I've done to myself, my family, to others, and to this world. You're the only one who can forgive me, so make me clean. I invite you now to be Savior, but also King and Lord. Help me now to understand what it means to have purpose in this life that comes from you and actually trust in eternal life that is given through you. Forgive me of my sins. I turn from my life now and I embrace you. I do this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So as we come now to the end of the service here and in Port Perry, as you sing this last song, whatever song both sites have chosen, remember the life-transforming power of the message of Jesus. Remember what God has done in your earth. Remember your testimony right now. Remember with the love of God and what he promises you. Remember what he's doing around the world. Despite all the crap and danger that's happening, Jesus is still Lord and he's still changing hearts in the worst places on earth. Remember the hope we have. And so as we sing, let us relish, sit in the love of Jesus in this next song and celebrate what we have. Don't take any of it for granted. Can you do that this morning? Let's sing to Jesus, shown by the Spirit, great revealer of the Father. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.